Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Okay, this morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 7. We're on the downward slope. Um, I'll just read and we'll get into it. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's, um, it's important this morning that we land our text in its appropriate context because this text is abused quite a lot by people and misused. So I think the question that we need to ask first up is, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Like that's how far I think we need to go back to land this text. So the online Britannica or whatever website I was on to find this says, that the Sermon on the Mount is a biblical collection of religious teachings and ethical sayings of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, yeah, but no. It is those things, but it's actually really not. As we've been discovering over the last several months, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of what life looks like in the kingdom of God. They're not religious teachings or ethical sayings, per se, that are designed to help us live like a better life. It's an invitation to live a recreated life, to live a kingdom life, to live an upside-down life according to what the world says is life. And as I've said many times, I hope it's getting into your core, is that when we're reading scripture, context is king. And the passage today, as I said just before, has been abused and misused so often that we need to start at the very beginning. Because as Julie Andrews says, it's a very good place to start. Um, can I just get the house lights just up a tiny bit, please? I can't see anybody. So an often misinterpretation of this text goes something like this. The Bible says, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Therefore, all we must do is ask for it, uh, for it in faith and persistence and we'll get it. James chapter 4, verse 2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. Therefore, go for it, name it, and claim it. 
we've all heard that before. It's very prosperity gospel-ish. We don't do prosperity gospel here. I hope we don't anyway. So, but this turns God into a celestial slot machine. Whereas if you pull the prayer handle as, as many times as you possibly can, and hopefully the magic coins come out. And so we can get what we want. That's how often this passage is used. So when we started preaching all those months ago, the Sermon on the Mount, we all sort of used slightly different imagery of um, how the sermon was structured. And the image I used was of a concertina. I don't know if anyone remembers that. But everything is linked and everything expands on what goes before it. Okay, And all of the Sermon on the Mount is centred and reflects and reliant on Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognise and understand their spiritual brokenness and bankruptcy before the Lord. We have nothing to offer God in exchange for our salvation. Now, as we look at the rest of the Beatitudes, they are an expansion or a further explanation of verse 3. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is an expansion and an explanation of the Beatitudes. So as we fold it all out, it's all linked. So if we start to look at what the context and meaning is, it folds all the way back in to chapter 5, verse 3. So when we start to develop a prayer strategy, so we end up in chapter 7, verse 7, and we start to say that God's a celestial slot machine, for lack of a better word, is to completely take and grossly misinterpret what the passage is saying. And it's not only that, it's grossly misinterpreting the entire sermon. So just a note, when Jesus begins to preach the gospel, what is it that he's preaching? That's important to know here. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Mark chapter 1 verse 15, 14 and 15 says something similar. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come and the time and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. When Matthew, sorry, in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends out his disciples for the first time. Chapter, five, uh, chapter 10, verse 5. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim... 
the kingdom of heaven has come near. And verse 8 then goes on to describe what the kingdom looks like. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. So then we get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Being poor in spirit is not the first hoop amongst many hoops that we have to jump through to get into the kingdom. Those who are poor in spirit already have the whole thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is exactly what Jesus came to pronounce, that the kingdom of heaven has come. So if you are poor in spirit, you have realized the reality of Jesus' gospel in your life right now. That is the reality. And the Beatitudes don't describe more hoops that we have to go through. The Beatitudes describe the characteristics of someone who is poor in spirit. It is describing how we live as those who have the fullness of the kingdom right now. We are called to be salt and light. What our identity is and how we permeate a world that is dark and tasteless. The sermon then teaches us that the heart is all that matters. That it's not about simply practicing behavioural modification or just being good people or searching for kudos for everybody else, from everybody else. It's about people who live our lives to focus and honour wholly and solely on God. And everything that we do is done before him. How do we treat others? Is a defining factor of what it means to someone who lives in the reality of the kingdom of God, which is an expression of those who are poor in spirit. It all folds out and it all folds back in again. One more point. Chapter 5, verse 17. I'm not sure if I got it up there. Don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. When we flip back to our passage this morning on chapter 7, verse 12, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, you also do the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. So when we're starting to look also at the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse, sorry, it's verse 17, and chapter 7, verse 12, both mention the Law and the Prophets, which create what we call an inclusio. So that everything on the inside of those relate to each other because they're almost like the brackets of the body of the text. So chapter 5, starting at verse 3 to verse 16 in chapter 5, is, it almost comes down that it's the, an introduction. From there is the body of the text, and then from chapter, five verse, uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 13, then begins the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll do that next week.
An important thing about that, and we're not going to get much more into structure, is that when you start to look at the structure of the introduction and then the structure of the conclusion, they're actually very close in how they're structured. So when we start to look at chapter 7, verse 13, enter through the narrow gates, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it? We look at that and go, wow, that's really hard. What does that even mean? But when we're starting to look at the structure of the entire text, that's reflective of chapter 5, verse 3, that those who have the kingdom are poor in spirit. That's a very narrow road. Because if you're not poor in spirit, you don't have the kingdom. Do you see how it's all working? So to then turn around and say that, well, if we pray and whatever we pray, God will just simply give it to us, do you see how much out of context that is? Now, this is all pretty daunting. Chapter 5, verse 48 tells us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. They're pretty lofty standards, don't you think? I'm not really sure I can do that. So when we start to look at what, the, what chapter 7, verse 7, the prayer is about, it's about how we go about doing this that God has called us to. Because they are standards that no human can ever achieve. And it's this context that we can now finally start to talk about our text this morning. We need help. We need guidance, we need conviction, and we need grace. But where do we get all that from? Jesus tells us, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Verses 7 and 8 are not describing a blank check to any and all our worldly desires, but is teaching us to pray for the character of the kingdom in our lives. And if we ask for those things, we will receive them, we will find them, and the door will be opened. John Stott wrote this. The best way to approach this problem is to remember that the promise of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are not unconditional. A moment's thought will convince us of this. It is absurd to suppose that the promise, ask and it shall be given to you, is an absolute pledge with no strings attached. That knock and it will be open to you is an open sesame to every closed door without exception. And that by waving of a prayer wand, any wish will be granted and every dream will come true. The idea is ridiculous. If it would turn prayer into magic, the person who prays into a magician like Aladdin and God into a servant who appears instantly to do our bidding like Aladdin's genie every time we rub our little prayer lamp. So, but does that mean that we should stop praying for things? I went through a period several years ago where it was like, well, if... I'm not praying in the will of God and I'm not asking for things that God has for me, then I just won't pray for them. I won't ask. So I didn't pray for anything for myself, which I don't think is the correct interpretation here. 
don't need to do that, okay? So, but God is interested in all aspects of our lives. He never promises that we will be healthy, wealthy, and free from our problems. If we pray for those things, we have no scriptural assurances that God will answer our request. Let me give you a couple of examples. So last Saturday, not yesterday, but the day before, last week, Dusty, my eldest, was in her uh, netball grand final. And I think all of the parents speaking to like each other before the final, I think we were more nervous than the kids. It was like, oh my gosh, you know my girls in the ground, I hope they win. Now, everyone was like, oh, of course they'll win. Like, they lost their first game and won everything else. And it wasn't like by a little bit. They were winning like 30 goals to three and stuff. So they were killing everybody, which was easy to watch when you're a parent. <laughs> but I found myself all of sort of the week leading up. It's like, please, please, Lord, let them win. Please, God, let them win. And I thought, I didn't pray. I thought, maybe just send like... A mild flu through the other team, so they <laughs> didn't pray it. I thought it, <laughs> but if it happened, I wouldn't be upset about it. And so no, that, none of that happened. She ended up winning anyway. But God's not going to answer that prayer. I used to have friends when I was a kid who used to pray that the Eagles would win every week. You know, I mean, you know, try praying through the Ken Judd era, man. That was hard, hard graft. Another example, January this year, obviously anyone who's been living through this COVID thing knows that every, if you want to go anywhere, everything's fully booked. So if you're going to go away, it's going to be someplace you don't particularly want to go in some hovel that you don't particularly want to stay in, and it's going to cost you lots of money to do so, yeah? So we decided instead of spending a whole bunch of money living in a hovel for a week, that we would just stay in Perth for the month and we would do a whole bunch of things that we normally couldn't justifiably pay for. And one of the, um, the things that one of the, the girls wanted to do, so Addison, my youngest, wanted to stay for a night at Crown and play blackjack or not. No, no, no joking. And, <laughs> and um, so all she wanted to do was just swim in the pool. I've got to tell you, that is an expensive pool, okay? But we get, so we get there in the afternoon as when you're supposed to check in and we you know, go up to our room and go, yes, it's wonderful and all that. I used to work in hotels, so hotels don't really impress me. And um, change into our bathers, go back down to the lift, go back downstairs and go to the pool deck. What we hadn't really anticipated was that everybody else in Perth had thought about doing the same thing. <laughs> and not only was there no seats, there was also no floor space to put stuff on. So like we walked around and it's like we can't even dump our stuff on the floor because there was a towel or someone was sitting everywhere. It was just, for an introvert it was horrific. So anyway, as we were walking around, um, and I don't know, the pool's like a, it's quite large and it's quite a weird shape. Um, I'd got separated from Marnie and the girls. And so I sort of found myself sort of standing off to the side a bit and just found myself praying. It's like, Lord, just help us find somewhere to sit. Like, the girls are desperate for this to be a good experience. Just help us find somewhere to sit. And without exaggerating, within 15 seconds, some bloke came up to me and went, hey, mate, are you looking for a seat? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am. He goes, okay, got a couple over here. 
And without, a, without exaggerating, he literally took me to the opposite side of the pool from where I was standing. It couldn't have got any further away from where I was standing. And he's sort of like, oh, these aren't very good because they were in the shade and stuff. And it's like, mate, these are fabulous. And Marnie sort of saw me sitting down. She's like, how on earth did you get these? And I'm like, honestly? She's like, yeah. I said, I prayed for them. And it's like... <laughs> So, but the thing is, God cares about the little things, those inconsequential things. I'm not sure he's going to find you a car parking space right next to the door every time you pray for it, but you never know. So it's with all of this in mind that we can finally get into our text. (laughs) Chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened. So this is what they call a double, triple imperative and a double, triple assurance. For lack of a better word. Okay. So there's a triple imperative which is ask, seek and knock. And there's what they call a triple assurance, which is it will be given, you will find it, it will be opened. Now, some commentators argue that the ask, seek, knock is an escalation of how we should ask for things. So you ask God for something and if he doesn't give it, like, you know, you better start seeking it, whatever that means. And if he doesn't give it when you seek it, then you better start knocking. So not necessarily. Most commentators agree that seek and knock don't introduce distinct ideas, but are functions and or are synonyms and are simply metaphors of asking things in prayer. And the three responses are the same way. They're just synonyms of receiving. Ask, seek and knock are what they call present imperatives, which command a person to begin and then to continue the action, to perform an action continually. Ask and keep on asking for those things that will make us more like Jesus. Seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. uh, Perseverance is the key. Luke chapter 11 confirms this. Starting at verse 5. He also said to them, this is Jesus speaking. Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, excuse me, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness or perseverance, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, and it goes on, same language. So the parable highlights how we are to approach God. The friend persisted in knocking and he received what he needed. We are to passionately persist in prayer. 
Do you need to renew your mind? Keep asking. Do you have a critical or unforgiving spirit? Seek after God. Do you have persistent anger or struggle with sexual impurity? Do you find yourself often lying or that you're not generous? Be persistent in bringing those things before the Lord and seek his characteristics or the characteristics of someone who dwells in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be more generous? Pray for generosity. You don't want to lie as much as you do or exaggerate the truth? Ask for a spirit of honesty and persist in that. The responses given are what they call divine passives. They are not something that we do, but something that we receive. There's nothing that you can do to receive the gifts of God other than pray persistently for them. There is, however, an openness about verses 7 and 8, which invites not just a resigned acceptance of what the Father gives, but a willingness to explore the extent of his generosity. Secure in the knowledge that only what is good will be given. Pray persistently and confidently, and if you're off base with what you're asking, God isn't going to give you something horrible to spite yourself, which is what the, how the next verses translate. Verses seven and, uh, 9, to seven, 9 to 11, sorry. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So these verses illustrate to us the confidence we have in God in his willingness to respond to us when we pray. The illustration is deliberately absurd. So the initial audience, so the audience that Jesus was speaking to specifically, and then obviously the, uh, the first century audience, would have been familiar with the flat stones by the shore that looked exactly like their round, flat cakes of bread. And they would have been familiar with their fish, they're more like eels or catfish, that looked very much like snakes. A human parent will not meet their child's request for food with useless or even harmful substitutes. Even though, as verse 11 points out, that the human parents are evil. Now that's quite strong language. We don't like to think of ourselves as evil. This is what Jesus is saying. Humanity's sinfulness here is assumed by Jesus. And even though we are sinful, the needs of our children prevail over our sinfulness to the point that we would not intentionally harm or deceive them. How much more then, Jesus is saying, that our Father in heaven, who is by nature good, is willing and eager to meet the spiritual needs of his children. And this is where our confidence comes from. If you seek the kingdom of God and the character of someone who lives as a member of the kingdom, you 
ask for it, you keep on asking for it, and God has promised that you will find it. That is what this prayer is about. How are we doing? Okay? If you're not, we're continuing on anyway. So. We're almost done. Chapter 7, verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is also known as the golden rule. Anyone heard it called that before? Funnily enough, in my research of this, it's not called the golden rule because of its important moral principles. It's called the golden rule because Emperor Alexander Severus in the 3rd century had Matthew chapter 7, 12 inscribed in gold on the wall of his throne room. Hence the golden rule. Doesn't decrease its meaning, but that's a funny aside, I thought at least anyway. So now there's a debate, I don't know how raging, as to what exactly the passage refers to here. Because at the start of verse 12, it says, therefore, which by nature means that it's referring something to something that goes before it. And so the debate is, is it referring to the immediate text preceding it? Is it referring to the great sermon on the mount text? Or is it referring to something wider? And the answer to that is yes. Verse 12 relates to the generous nature of God described in verses 17 to 11 and how we should then live that out. Verse 12, as we discussed earlier, is the end bracket of the inclusio that encompasses the body of the whole sermon of the text. That's obviously why I included that information before. And consequently summarises and concludes Jesus' interpretation of the application of the law. And verse 12 also states that it encompasses the law and the prophets. It is the summation of the essence of the character of God required of his people in the entire Old Testament. So it refers to a lot of things. Now, Jesus wasn't the first person to teach something like this. There's evidence of similar sayings in ancient literature, but they're often said in the negative. Do not do to others what you dislike yourself. Now, it's said that Confucius, who is a Chinese philosopher, he lived 551 BC to 479 BC, so about 500 years before Christ, was asked for a rule of life and he replied, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. One commentator wrote this. This is not nearly as demanding and challenging as the positive form that Jesus gives his disciples as the keynote for relationships with others. Confucius's maximum could become the basis for law and frequently has become just that. You can legislate against people doing to others what they would not want done to themselves. That is one of the ways of making a fair society. But you can never legislate to bring about what Jesus is teaching. That generous attitude of going out of your way to encourage the depressed, to forgive those who have wronged you, and to help the disadvantaged requires 
positive action, often self-sacrificial action. You don't do that to fulfill some law. You only do it if the love of the kingdom burns in your heart. He goes on to say this. It is one thing to say, I must not harm others. It is quite another to say, I must go out of my way to help them. The first could be fulfilled by inaction, the second only by self-sacrificial love. The very thing that God evidenced in bringing people into his kingdom in the first place. Whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. Is to allow divine perfection to overflow into the world. It is an expression of God's love and his grace and it is a response to the divine gift that those who are poor in spirit receive. It is being salt and light to a world of tasteless darkness. It is living in the kingdom of heaven here and now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, firstly, that you've called us out of darkness and into your wonderful light. Father, we thank you that through your son's life, his death and resurrection and ascension, that you have called us out of death and into life. Father, we thank you that You are a God who is alive and that you call us into deeper and deeper relationship with you and that the life of someone who follows you is not simply a life of a passive passenger but it's a dynamic response to the love that you've overflown to us. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we go about the rest of our day this morning or today, that you speak to us and that you teach us how to pray. That it's not for the, the little things in life, Father, that you do care about, but it's prayer that revives our want and desire for a godly character that reflects who you are. 